Travis Wingfield. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. I know there's a lot riding on it, but it's all psychological. Just got to stay in a positive frame of mind. You are Locked On Dolphin, your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphin, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, Miami! What is up, Dolphins? And welcome into the Monday, July the 9th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I'm here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, another heavy-hitting guest joins the podcast to talk in-depth Dolphins film analysis. What can we surmise from all the off-season moves and their incorporation within this Adam Gaze offense? Who does Minka Fitzpatrick compare most favorably to? Eric Stutisville's impact on Kenyon Drake and the running game and much much more. But first, before any of that, I kindly invite all of you that have not done so already to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review once you are there. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at NFL. Follow the show at LockedOnFins. And of course, check out LockedOnDolphins.com, the number one rated blog in the Lockdown Network. And of course, the other Lockdown Sports family of podcasts like the Lockdown Heat podcast and Lockdown NFL podcast for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. And you guys know the drill by now. Every time I have a guest, I don't want to waste any time. So let's go ahead and bring him on right now. That's another Miami Dolphins. And joining the podcast now is the draft and film analyst for SB Nation's Battle Red blog. His YouTube channel is a must- must watch for all NFL film fans. I'm thrilled to welcome in Brett Coleman to the podcast. Brett, thanks for chatting with me today, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, as always. And I, you know, I got a, a whiff of some of your stuff on YouTube and found you on Twitter and reached out to you and you were very quick to get back to me. So I really appreciate that. But for all enthusiasts of this podcast, I tend to get into the film myself and that's kind of the, I guess, the general theme of the podcast. So I'm curious to ask you, who are some of your favorite teams and schemes to watch and how did you get into all this stuff? Well, you know, as a as a Texans fan, I have a, a, a pretty deep understanding of the Shanahan system and all of the kind of offshoots of that, whether it was uh, Gary Kubiak, who was a Shanahan disciple, older Shanahan disciple, and you had Kyle underneath him, who then went on to Washington and then Atlanta, and obviously now he's in San Francisco. You got Matt LaFleur, who was part of that system. He's the new OC in Tennessee. Um, you got Sean McVay who was under Kyle Shanahan and the older Shanahan in Washington, and he went to L.A. So there's, there's a lot of Shanahanian influences around the NFL that I, I, I pay attention to a lot just because I, I, I enjoy watching that system. I know that system very well, um, and it, it works literally everywhere it goes, so I'm pretty excited to watch that. Uh, and, and I just started uh, watching the Panthers offense last year under Mike Shula. I started charting that pretty heavily the last couple weeks, and that was um, – I wouldn't say it's the most enjoyable system I watched, but it, it was definitely the most difficult just because there's there's a lot going on there. Uh, not all of it worked, but in terms of play design, they had some of the most creative play designs that I've seen in the NFL. So that was really entertaining for me. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say watching film and looking at different systems, what, what makes it so fun to me is that every team to a degree, runs something entirely different. You know, they all have their own identities. They all have their own, uh, I guess you can call them staples that they stick by. And, you know, the difference in when these two systems clash every week and, you know, all these different teams, and all these different identities, that's what makes the league entertaining to me is it's it's never 
carbon copy teams that are playing against each other. It's always people that have kind of th- their own thing that they rely on. So that, that's really what I enjoy most about watching film is seeing those uh, very, very different teams collide every single week. It really helps you get away from the shallow analysis of, well, this team has a better record, therefore they're going to win the game. So it, it makes the, the league more fun, like you mentioned. And I'm sure with Christian McCaffrey and Cam Newton, that really helps th- make things more creative. And that's kind of one thing that the Dolphins and, and Dolphins fans in general were hoping for with Adam Gaze. We've heard about, you know, every offense, like you mentioned, is different, but they also kind of have the same influences as far as what they started off as or their origin story, as it were. And, you know, the er- the Earnhardt Perkins ske- uh, scheme that Adam Gaze currently incorporates with some elements of Mike Martz that he learned when he was coming up with the Rams and the Lions, it, that's kind of where we've heard he wants to take this offense. And the idea of this offense is to streamline the communication and find a way to get them playing faster at a more up-tempo pace and something they haven't done in the past. So in that regard, going from Jarvis Landry, Jay Ajayi, these big-name stars that maybe weren't fits for that scheme, and now we go to Danny Amendola, Albert Wilson, Mike Kosicki, you know, Kalen Balazs joins Kenyon Drake. Is this, did the Dolphins improve in that aspect in the sense that they have guys that can better run this scheme? Well, I, I definitely think the Amendola pickup for sure was specifically because of the offense they run, just because Amendola's been in it forever. He knows it like the back of his hand. And whether or not you know he's a quote-unquote better slot receiver than Jarvis Landry, I mean, obviously I think Landry is more physically talented. Uh, he's one of the most physically talented slot receivers in the league. But in that position, it's so reliant on chemistry, being able to read defenses both pre and post snaps you can identify coverage roles identify different leverages you know slot receiver in this system uh, in Gase's version of the Hart Perkins system it's 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 much more about just being a smart player that's in the right spot at the right time than it is being about physically talented so I, I do think it was a great pickup in that sense and I think he fits in that sense just because Amendola is a very very smart receiver that you know is going to be in the right place at the right time so I, I personally, I expect him to get at least 80 catches just because he'll be that very reliable person that, you know, on you know third and six, that's going to be who Tannehill looks to. Uh, as for everybody else in the offense, I like Kenyon Drake a lot as kind of a, a pure zone runner. I don't like him as much on gap scheme runs, which was probably why they brought in Kalen Balaj to kind of be that banger between the tackles while you got Drake running outside zone. I know they want to move away a little bit from outside zone, but. Their, their skill sets probably complement each other very well because they, they're both good at different types of runs. And you still got Devontae Parker there, who the career hasn't started out like I expected, but I, I did have him as my number one wide receiver in that draft class, even over Amari Cooper. It was, it was very, like, by the slimmest of margins, but I, I still had him as the number one guy. So he still does have a lot of talent. And I, I think if he can get on the same page with Tannehill, and obviously if he can stay healthy, I do think he can be at some point a legitimate number one. So it's not like they don't have talent at all on the offense. Uh, Maybe we just haven't seen it develop like we expected. And, uh, you know, hopefully it can kind of get to where I think it should be this year. But uh, wait and see, I guess. Yeah, and Parker has definitely flashed the big playability. Just hasn't been a thing of consistency for him and staying healthy and being durable. But we have a lot more to get to here with my guest, Brett Coleman. You can find him on Twitter. It's at Brett Coleman. We'll do that afterward from our sponsors right after this. And we'll be back with more from Brett Coleman, but first, a word from our sponsor. You guys come to Locked On Dolphins for all the analysis and insight for the game we all love. Well, BlueChew.com is just like the podcast. It gets you ready for game time, anytime, 
anywhere. So listen up, bluechew.com. That's blue, not red. Bluechew.com brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, after a big, big Finn's win, or when she wants to console you after that heartbreaking loss, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no more in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkward conversations. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew ships and prepares direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when using special promo code LOCKEDON. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code LOCKEDON to try it today for free. BlueChew is the better, cheaper, faster option, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And we're back here with Brett Coleman. He is of the Battle Red blog at SB Nation and, of course, his fantastic YouTube channel. You can find him on Twitter, at Brett Coleman. And, Brett, you talked about a couple of things on the other side of the podcast that actually kind of prelude a couple of topics I had for you here. Let's go ahead and start with the quarterback first and Ryan Tannehill and some of the things that he does better than others in terms of his own game. And, and one of those things is he really attacks the middle of the football field very well. He's better to his right than his left. And I'm just curious if you have a sense of did the offense really kind of show what Ryan Tannehill does better in 2016 compared to what he's done in previous years under other coaches? And can we expect more of that type of ascension from Tannehill in 2018? You know, what people need to remember is that Adam Gase's system is not something that you can just pick up immediately. Uh, it's, it's very, very complex, like all Earhart Perkins systems are. Uh, you, you have to be able to, from any formation and any personnel grouping, you have to be able to identify what the defense is giving you and then get yourself into the right play to deal with that. Uh, it means that all of the receivers need to be on the same page. Again, going back to bringing in Amadola, the offensive line needs to be on the same page with all these protection calls because protection calls are going to be Tannehill's responsibility. Uh, you know, everybody needs to be able to adjust their routes based on the coverage they're seeing so that the ball doesn't just start sailing over their head when Tannehill throws it to a spot that he expects them to be at and they're not. So it, it's, it's very communication centric. It's very cerebral. And when it works, I mean, it really works. We, we've seen that in new England forever. Um, but it, it takes a while to kind of get there. So it, I, he didn't have a bad first year with Gase, you know, he threw for 67% completions. He had a positive touchdown to interception ratio, still less than 3000 yards, but it's not like, it was terrible. It was, it was okay. For the first year in the system, people just need to understand it. That's to be expected. And now going into year three of it, I know we only played one year, but going into year three of it, he should have a better understanding of, of, the, of you know, everything that goes into playing quarterback in this system. Um, and I, I think he will be better than he was in 2016. Again, not that he was bad in 2016, but I do expect to be a, a very sizable jump in production just because he's more comfortable with what Gase is asking him to do. That was really the heartbreaker of the, the first knee injury was the fact that he had posted three out of four games with a passer rating over 124 in three of those four games. So he was definitely on the rise there, and that's our hope going into this season. And I think what a lot of Dolphins fans are kind of hanging their hat on in terms of 
hoping the national media is wrong in all of these really disparaging predictions for their for their uh, record this year. But you talked a little bit about the backfield and Kenyon Drake. And, you know, last year we had to go through the whole Chris Furster thing with the white powdery substance and all that fun stuff, trading off Jay Ajayi. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you talked about Shanahan earlier in the, in the kind of the outside zone scheme or the zone running scheme that he pretty much brought into the NFL, at least back in the early 2000s. And I'm curious... This year, they're going with Eric Studisville as the running game coordinator over Chris Furster, who got fired for obvious reasons. And you being a guy that is a, a fan of the Shanahan scheme and Studisville spent time in Denver, do you think that some of the some of Jay Ajayi's lack of really wanting to run other types of plays and just the one single play is going to open up this offense? You talked about Balaj and Drake and kind of being compliments of one another. These are guys that can stay on the field for all three downs. Do you think the Dolphins' backfield might be better than it was with Jay Ajayi? You know, it's funny. Last summer, I did a video on JHI, and it was both correct and incorrect at the same time. And here's why: that video was partially about pouncing, in that JHI's production in the Miami backfield was entirely reliant on the health of Mike Pouncey. Because when you're running a zone system, and you know they predominantly use zone runs with Jai, when you're running that kind of system, the most important player in that play is the center, bar none. Any zone team will tell you that. That's why Alex Mack made such a huge difference in Atlanta. As soon as they get a really good zone center, all of a sudden zone runs start to work just because you have to have a center that can reach block, that can get in the way of that one tech, or even in Mack's case, he can reach all the way to a three tech, seal off the front side of that lane, and let the running back hit the hole. If you don't have a center that can do that, you will not be able to run the ball. And so when I was making that video, and uh, you know, Pouncey at the time when I made it was one of the best zone centers in the NFL. And so I expected that if he played at least 14 or 15 games, because rarely does he play 16, but I said if at least if he played that many games, Ajayi should have a good year because he'll have a good center in front of him. And what I didn't expect was that Pouncey was healthy, but he didn't play like the Pouncey of old. And so without a without good center play, in front of Ajayi, his production fell off a cliff. When he got traded to Philly, all of a sudden he's got Jason Kelsey in front of him, who's arguably you know, a top two or three zone center in the NFL, and his production and efficiency skyrockets. It was something like three yards a carry more than he was getting in Miami. So I, I feel like the, the run game in Miami with Ajayi was kind of one-dimensional. <clears throat> Excuse me, one-dimensional. So, you know, I feel like the run game in Miami was one-dimensional because it was a zone runner with a zone center, and when that fell apart, it just didn't work. Whereas now you bring in Daniel Kilgore, who I feel like is a little bit more versatile. Again, he's not an elite center, but he's a little bit more versatile. So I feel like you can run those gap scheme runs or, you know, those power runs with Kayla LeBlage and make that work. You can run a little bit of zone with Kenyon Drake and make that work. You can have Frank Gore, you know, run ISO up the middle and make it work. So, uh, again, whether the run game will be massively improved, I do think it will be better. Will it be elite? Probably not. But I do think it will be better because they'll have better center play and because I feel like they'll have a little bit more variety in their runs. And so that, uh, I, I do expect it to get better. The question is just how much better. And that's the hope as well as using the running backs in the passing game too because Ajayi from a, a passing game standpoint didn't offer a whole lot as a pass catcher. But you know, you talk a little bit about how much uh, his uh, production really dipped last year. And I can't tell you how many times Dolphins running backs were contacted in the backfield. Seems to be the prevailing theme year in and year out. 
And let's go ahead and shift gears to the other side of the football here and talk about guys that want to get penetration on the defensive side. Because as you know, Brett, the Dolphins lost one of the best players in the league at defensive tackle this year. They cut in Dominican Sue. And my question for you, Brett, is how much of that can be scheme induced? We have this wide nine scheme that just hasn't really taken hold in Miami for whatever reason for a couple of years, despite the fact that we have one of the best get offs as a pass rusher in Cam Wake. But things just haven't really worked out that well. So, how do you see this scheme adapting without Indomitian Sue moving forward? You know, the thing about the wide nine that people don't understand is it's not really about the defensive ends. The wide nine sure helps the defensive end get to the corner. So, you know, you expect that. Uh, both Wake uh, and and that uh, uh, Robert Quinn, you know, from that alignment, they should be able to get a bunch of sacks. But the thing is, the scheme itself relies on linebackers, and because of how that alignment is, because everything is so wide, there's pretty much no chance that the defensive ends are going to be able to crash in against the run. Like they are all force all the time, which means you need linebackers that can fill that B gap because everybody's getting the field at the same time. You need linebackers that can take on a block, get off the block, and make the tackle by themselves, because the defensive ends will not be involved in the run at all. You know, that's why Jason Babin got 19 and a half sacks in this system, like, but barely any tackles against the run. Like, right. Literally, their one job is to get the quarterback. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have linebackers that can stop the run all by themselves, guess what? You're going to get run on every single week. And last year, unfortunately... You know, they drafted a linebacker that they thought could help with that in Raekwon McMillan, and he didn't play a single snap because he got hurt. This year, McMillan's back. You still got Alonzo. Stephon Anthony, I feel like, has had a lot of issues in the past in terms of getting off blocks, so that's why they brought in Jerome Baker. So the hope is that they finally built up this linebacking core to be able to support the wide nine. But if these backers can't take on blocks and get off blocks and make tackles all by themselves, this defense will fall apart. And that's So on... Yeah, on paper it works, but they really need good linebacker play or it's not going to work. It just You see the, the downfall of Kiko last year compared to what he was in 2016. It's really kind of mind-blowing. And you talked about Christian McCaffrey and the Panthers offense earlier in the episode, and that was really one of the biggest, I think, eye-opening moments for the defense, the linebackers, and Kiko Alonso in particular was just how bad McCaffrey made him look as a pass catcher. And you talk about what Matt Burke, the new Dolphins defensive coordinator from last year, what he's able to do with his personnel calls and, and getting the right, just the right people onto the field. We had more linebackers in passing situations than just about any other team in the NFL. And the hope now is that Minka Fitzpatrick, we'll talk about him here in a minute, but the hope is that with adding him and kind of evolving into the modern day NFL defense, which is more defensive back centric over linebackers, that's the hope. So do you think that this defense could make that change as Minka, the kind of the linchpin to all that? And, and where do you see the Dolphins coming down on that, on that aspect? It's funny you mentioned McCaffrey because I, I studied that game as part of the McCaffrey episode that I'm working on right now, uh, which kind of is all about the whole entire Panthers offense. And I was watching him roast them over and over again in space. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Fitzpatrick pick makes a lot more sense now because <laughs> you look at some other teams and how they handled uh, you know, McCaffrey in space was they played nickel. Even if the Panthers were in a two-back set. They were going out there with nickel, and they were putting either a corner on him or a safety on him if they felt like the safety could handle him in man coverage. Green Bay did it with Burnett, which, you know, he still got his yards in there, but it was really more due to communication errors than just outright getting roasted in coverage. Uh, the Bucks handled him with a corner in passing down sometimes. So I feel like Fitzpatrick, in a way, when they drafted him, it was a direct response to that game because they realized that everybody in the league saw that on tape. Everybody. 
and you got a guy up in New England named James White. And if New England's looking at that game, they're saying, okay, we can do that with James White every single time we play this team because they don't have any linebackers that can cover. All of a sudden, you bring in Fitzpatrick and say, okay. In the weeks we're playing the Patriots, we're playing nickel all day long. We're putting Fitzpatrick on James White, and that's his job. I feel like that's why they drafted him because that it is the best response they could have drafted, and that's probably why they did it. And it wasn't the only time it's happened. I mean, yeah, that's when it was really, really, really exposed. But it's been going on. You mentioned the Patriots with Deion Lewis. He's done it to us a couple times as well. So definitely a good idea to do that. But we're going to talk about Minka Fitzpatrick and some other Dolphins-related topics with Brett Coleman here next on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast at Winkle NFL, at Lockdown Fins, and at Brett Coleman. And rolling on into the third segment here, talking with my guest, Brett Coleman. He is SB Nation Battle Red blog draft and film analyst, has a great YouTube channel, and you can find him on Twitter at Brett Coleman. Brett, one of your favorite guys in this draft class was our very own safety, Mika Fitzpatrick. And you talked about in the last segment, the Dolphins realizing they're going to have to make some changes to their personnel and the way they do things in the back end to mitigate some of these running backs and tight ends that seem to kill the Dolphins every single year. So you put a great video out comparing Mika Fitzpatrick to Malcolm Jenkins. I think it was pre-draft, and I, I fell in love with that video right after the Dolphins took him. So just kind of go behind the curtain a little bit and talk to us about Mika Fitzpatrick and the impact that he can have as a rookie from really day one. You know, I think the Jenkins comparison is, is, is really good for him because Jenkins can do everything. You know, he, he's not just a, a guy you can put in the slide. He's not just a guy that can handle run support, but you can put him in the deep middle as well. And so when I look at Fitzpatrick and how he fits in this defense, you know, he, he's a guy that Matt Burke can kind of move around from week to week depending on, on what the offense is bringing at him. So if he's really worried about a scat back like McCaffrey or Deion Lewis or James White or whoever – you know, all, Minka's job that week can be to mitigate that presence, especially if he doesn't trust his linebackers in coverage. If he feels like it, it's more of a traditional running back that they're going to see a lot, you know, let's say they're playing the Rams and Todd Gurley or the Steelers and Le'Veon Bell, you know, if they feel like it's not necessarily a, a quickness issue that they need to deal with out of the backfield, but they feel like the deep passing game is maybe more of a concern, you can put Fitzpatrick in the deep middle and have him close off the seams. So the, the fact that he can do either one of those things and be a, a huge impact player is extraordinarily valuable. And I'm excited to see how they use him from week to week. I don't feel like his role is going to stay the same from week to week, but that is why he is so important is because he doesn't have to do the same thing every week. And they've talked about him playing three positions already through camp and, and both free safety, strong safety, and the big nickel too. And one of the things that really excites me is the fact that we just haven't had a safety to go along with Rashad Jones, who for my money has been one of the better box safeties in the NFL for a long time now, and he finally has a complimentary piece to go along with him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because Rashad Jones, like you know what Rashad Jones' role is going to be. He's going to be down in the box. He's going to be kicking ass, taking names, destroying running backs when they try to hit the hole. He's going to be an excellent force safety outside to kind of let, you know, the defensive tackles and linebackers go hunt inside. He's, he's going to do his job and be elite at it, at least in the strong safety perspective. The, the question is, what were they going to do with TJ McDonald and Minka Fitzpatrick? I feel like Minka is both a better slot defender and a better deep middle defender than TJ McDonald. So it might come down to where they feel like McDonald fits best that might determine what Fitzpatrick does. But we know what Rashad Jones is going to do. The only question is how they use the other safeties around him. Either way in nickel, it's probably going to be a three-safety look in nickel. I don't expect to see three corners a lot. 
but how they use those other two safeties is going to be really fascinating going forward. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, it's it's one of those things that, and this kind of actually leads into the last question I have for you here, is the fact that McDonald got that big contract last preseason, despite the fact that he hadn't even played a regular season game, had an eight-game suspension looming over him. So maybe his bad contract, Kiko Alonso, Andre Branch, all these guys, maybe that's your answer for this next question. But my question for you, Brett, to get you out of here, is that you told me off the air that you think Adam Gaze will get this ship righted, and the key word here is eventually. So two parts of the question I have for you here. What is it about this team currently that makes you think they aren't quite there yet? And what is it about Adam Gaze that makes you think he'll get them there eventually? I think what makes me think they aren't there yet, and keep in mind, I do not think the Dolphins are a bad team at all. In fact, I think that, especially with the roster they have, I think with the play caller they have, and I think with Tannehill coming back presumably healthy, they are a very tough out every single week. But I don't have them making the playoffs just because looking at their roster, I want to see that one guy where if stuff isn't working, uh, you know, if the offense is sputtering, if the defense is getting gashed, who's that one guy that's going to make a play? And just coming from the perspective of a Texans fan, you know, the last two or three years through all the quarterback issues, if the offense was having a down day, Usually the only way that they were going to make it work and still put put up enough points to win the game was DeAndre Hopkins taking over. He was that one guy that you could rely on to take over a game by himself. Conversely, on defense, if the defense was getting gashed, J.J. Watt, Jadavian Clowney, two of them could take over a game by themselves. Even, you know, against the Rams last year, Jadavian Clowney damn near kept the defense in it by himself. So Houston in terms of total roster, probably has about the same roster uh, in terms of you know level of talent that Houston does. They're about the same team. But Houston, I think, has the elite players. They, they don't have the depth of Miami, but I think they have the elite players that can take over a game by themselves and kind of will the team to win. And that's what you see a lot of the time with these elite teams both in both conferences. They have that one star on both sides of the ball that can make up for a whole lot of mistakes. So whether Fitzpatrick turns into that guy, whether Gusecki turns into that elite tight end that you can count on like a Zach Ertz or a Travis Kelsey to kind of carry the offense, we don't know yet. You know, Maybe they end up being those quote-unquote takeover guys. But we, I just I, I don't know if they have that on the roster yet. They're going to be a good team. They're going to be hard to beat. But if they, if they want to make the playoffs and if they want to compete with the elite teams in the AFC and eventually make a Super Bowl – they got to have that superstar on both sides of the ball that they can rely on to just get them there. So th- that's why I think they're not quite there yet. In terms of what makes me think they'll get it fixed, again, it's because they're not a bad team. I feel like they're going to win enough games for Gase to stay around. And really, it's, it's not a matter of, is Gase a good coach? Is Tannehill the right quarterback? I think it's just a matter of they're a couple drafts away. They just got to get the right talent. And once they get the right talent, they'll be fine. But the roster just isn't quite there yet. And that's that's kind of the hope that we're the Dolphins fans are really hanging their hat on is that you know for a long time this team did not draft well at all. I'm, I'm not talking about just like middling players. I'm talking about like Deion Jordans and guys that are off the team within two or three years. And we've put together a couple of good drafts back to back and hoping that guys like Laramie Tunzel can step up, guys like Xavier Howard who continue to show a little bit more ascension. So the hope is that guys like that really elevate their game. So if you had to pick one, who would you say it is on either side of the ball? You know, th- this year, I would, I would probably say Robert Quinn on defense, 
you know, not not taking the rookies into account. I'd probably see Robert Quinn on defense because I feel like he's a really good fit for the system on that right defensive end side. Um, you know, he's a little bit longer in the tooth, but I don't even think he's 30 yet. So I think he's in his late 20s, like 28, 29. So yeah. he's, he's still in his prime. He's not, you know, the, the super young 24-year-old ultra-explosive Robert Quinn, but, you know, he's still a, a, an expert technician. He's got great bend. And I think coming off that wide nine, it'll be a little bit easier for him to get to the corner uh, after all the injuries he's sustained, maybe taking away a little bit of his, his pure explosiveness that he had in the past. So I think when you combine that alignment with his bend and his technique, he'll probably put up double-digit sacks. And I feel like you look to him as that closer in the fourth quarter that can get around the corner, force a fumble, get the ball back for the defense, and have Tannehill take a knee. I feel like that's going to be who you look for in the fourth quarter to make a play. On offense, I uh, <laughs> I said no rookies, but I'm actually going to go with Mike Kosicki. Perfect, perfect. You know, I... I Again, we're looking for that one guy that can just make a play. And I feel like if the offense is sputtering, one of the best ways to get things going is finding a big tight end that can jump 40 inches in the air deep down the seam for like a 30-yard gain. I feel like that just kind of gets everything going. Because once you can find a dominant tight end that can match up well with linebackers or safeties deep downfield, everything else opens up. Everything else. So if they can maybe even have like a, a Hunter Henry type of rookie year for Gusecki. That's going to be a huge impact on the offense. So I, I really liked him as a prospect. Hopefully uh, he, he can end up being that kind of player. And I think ultimately he will end up being that type of player. Especially for a team that has really had a lot of issues in the red zone going back a few years now. So yeah, great stuff, Brett. I really appreciate that. Once again, he is Brett Coleman, the draft and film analyst for the Battle Red blog at SB Nation. You can find him on Twitter at Brett Coleman as well as his YouTube channel just titled Brett Coleman. So Brett, thank you so much for doing this and I hope we can do it again in the future. Thank you for having me on. And there he goes. Again, a big thanks to Brett Coleman for doing the podcast for us. We're going to try to get him back on in season when the Dolphins play the Texans to talk about that matchup as Brett is a devote Texans fan. But that will do it for this edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. You guys be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review once you are there. Check out the other Lockdown Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Give me a follow on Twitter at NFL. Follow the show at LockdownFin. Check out LockdownDolphins.com, the number one blog in the Lockdown Network. You guys have a terrific rest of your day. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for another edition of Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football. Rise up on